You knew I couldn't hold on to part two for very long. I know I'm a bi-weekly podcast, but Patrick Flynn and I had such a good discussion that I think you deserve it right now. I'm not going to wait for another week. I've got another great conversation in the can. I'll give that to you next week on our regularly scheduled programming. But for now, let's finish off this fantastic conversation that I had with Patrick Flynn on the premises of American University where he teaches. It is mostly about the room and Battlefield Earth and bad movies and what you can learn about being creative from things that are badly done. And it turns out uh, he and I both believe that answer is a lot, quite a lot, which is why this class is so interesting and this discussion went on for so much longer, not that much longer, 40 minutes or so. It was great, though. I'm so glad you could join us again for part two of episode two with Patrick Flynn at Unknown Penguin. All of the show notes and all of those details are still there, unknownpenguin.com, the YouTube channel, links, uh, the link to the best of on his uh, from his website, all of that. Check out his timeline for all of the mentions of the people that the incredibly creative people that he's worked with. Thank you for joining us again. Uh, I do have one really quick plug because we talked about it. My next, uh, okay, my next guest, I'm just going to spoil the surprise. My next guest is Liz Maestri, Rhymes with Pastry. Uh, Easy to remember that way. And um, she wanted us to plug uh, Tiny Plays, Tiny House Plays, excuse me, Tiny House Plays. Uh, I've done this a lot. Um, Daniel Molman was totally involved with one of these plays, Pinky Square Productions. Check out the links there. it's closing weekend for that. They close on October 12th. You should totally check them out before they go away. Check out those houses because they're really cool, really excellent examples of design, and the plays that happen in them are totally fantastic. You should absolutely check it out. And now, part two, Patrick Flynn. That's enough silence for oh, me wow, to make okay, an edit. That's okay, it, that's the edit point. Yeah, okay, great. I, I, I'm not going to do that in software. I don't know how to do that yet. Oh, good point. Oh, you're not going to stop recording. That's a good idea. <laughs> yes. So here we are. We'll start this one over again. What's today's date? Uh, the 17th, right? September, September 17th, 17th, Wednesday, 12.55 p.m., episode number 7A of Exit the Stage Door. Oh, this is awesome. My name is Patrick, and this is Aaron. Hello, Aaron. Hello. I am you so You don't glad. listen to Oh Yeah Dude, I guess. That's another... That's the other thing I wanted I to I don't. I, that's... The other thing I wanted to talk to you about was podcasting. So we have to put that, like, after The Room, we'll talk about okay, great. conceptual podcasting. Oh, this is, this is excellent. Um, so, The Room. You have, the you room. have a concept for a... This is for a class, right? Yes. This is yes. a class that I am teaching this summer uh, for American University's Discover the World of Communication um, on bad movies. Oh, I love it. But I am showing The Room to my Vizlet students this summer. Oh, also. Okay. Um, this all happened... So I have a theory... Uh, and I believe it's true that um, you learn more by watching bad movies than you do from watching. Oh, I totally movies, agree, especially as a filmmaker. Um, and I developed this theory when the first time I saw, I had an evening when film school with a couple of friends, Russell Confroy, Russell Confroy and Morgan Pavlovic. I remember their names, so I'm going <laughs> to say it. Um, where we watched bad, we just for fun because we're big mystery science theater fans. Oh, okay, and we're like, yeah. Let's watch bad movies that aren't on mystery science theater. Let's just watch and have a good time. And we watched Hudson Hawk, <gasps> which I had never seen and it did not disappoint. <laughs> and Battlefield Earth. <gasps> and we got a projector from work and set it up. We're like watch these into my apartment and this huge screen. Oh man, great time. It was a great evening. But we watched Battlefield Earth and we watched it and we're watching and watching and I started to feel sick. Like physically sick, and I couldn't figure out why because we hadn't eaten anything unusual, uh-huh. 
and it wasn't the it wasn't that kind of sick. And I was like, we have to stop. Like I feel queasy. And we stood up and took a walk, and then I felt better. And we sat down again, and we started it up. And I noticed at that point that the whole movie is shot, as we say, Dutch. Oh, meaning that the camera is normally. Uh, level to the ground Mm -hmm. but if you shoot at Dutch angle which is a pejorative term I don't know why it's called Dutch it's on a slight angle very famously used in like the the sewer chase in the third man yeah the Carol Reed's movie Um, but the whole movie shot that way wow and so your equilibrium never has a chance to settle so it makes you it can make you physically sick that is an important thing to learn as a filmmaker student because you look at it and go this is why we don't shoot a whole movie this way because your audience gets physically sick <laughs> at your film, which is, by the way, also written and acted and directed terribly. But also on top of that, it's you don't do that. And so that was when I started thinking, we should watch this movie. Everybody should watch this movie. And then that extrapolated into the first time I saw The Room. Oh, yeah. And my life changed. Oh, yeah. Uh, because there really is. Before The Room. Before I saw The Room and Heather Clark's apartment in Flatbush and after she showed. I just love it. Because I was living in L.A., in uh, 2007 oh. and the billboards were up in Sa- on Sunset Boulevard oh, and awesome. I kept seeing the billboard going like what the hell is this movie who is that guy's face it's so bizarre and when Heather Clark I was doing a production of a play of mine at the New York French mm. and Heather Clark who's now a, uh, a and was at the time a, a, a fashion designer an excellent fashion designer mm. was in the cast and she said you have to cover my apartment and we're going to watch this movie and I'm not going to tell you anything about it <laughs> And she wouldn't even show me the cover of the DVD case oh. because it was that iconic picture. Yeah, she knew yeah. I knew that picture. So we watched the movie, and I mean, you've seen it. Yes, it's a remarkable piece of cinema. Yes, and so I'm. Sh- I, I so uh, we'll get back to it in one second. But that t- so last semester when I taught this visual literacy class, I wanted to demonstrate um, the process of making a movie. And it's much easier to get everybody on the page in a film discussion when a movie's bad because we all can have different opinions about whether a movie's good or not. Mm-hmm. But a bad movie especially a really bad movie. We all agree it's bad. You can like it or not like it. Yeah, oh yeah. Because it's bad. But it's all bad. We can start from that unifying principle. We all agree this is wrong. So why is it wrong? And we would watch scenes from Manos, The Hands of Fate <laughs> and contrast them with scenes from Pulp Fiction. There's the, oh, the walking yeah. in the hallway scene in Pulp Fiction, the foot massage conversation. I contrast with the arrival at the master's house in Manos because of the same length and they're trying to do the same thing and one's failing and one's not. Um, but then we watched a film that I wrote uh, when I was a film student here for a friend of mine that he paid me to write. And it's not a great short mm-hmm, film. It sure. did not turn out very well. Heather Haney was in it. Um, but we watched it, and I took my name off the, the copy they watched. Mm-hmm. And they watched it. And I said, this movie made by people more your own age. So let's watch this movie, and we'll talk about it. And we watched it. And they all didn't like it. They all kind of agreed mm-hmm. this is not a great movie. And then I said, okay, fun fact, I wrote this movie. And there was like silence in the room, and they all thought they were getting Fs for a second. I love undergrad <laughs> so much. And... Uh, and I said, and I don't like it either. I agree with everything you said. But now I want you to ask me any question you have. Mm, on the production. Yeah, yeah. And we had a 45-minute discussion, yeah. no joke, about, and they were just asking me, like, why did this happen? Why was this decision made? And I kept firing back with, like, I explained why. And I'd be like, what would you have done differently? Oh, yeah. What should have happened? And we had a great back and forth. So this semester, I'm taking it up a notch, and we're watching The Room, <laughs> which I didn't write or direct. But... Um, <laughs> Because Room is obviously written, directed, produced, and executive produced. I saw that, yeah. And starring Mr. Tommy Wiseau, uh, our greatest film genius. Did you see this woman who's talking about... The, I posted I posted a link to it on Twitter. This woman is talking about how Tommy Wiseau is, is getting... Has people, like has cast people and hired people. Oh, to do another... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But to do a sitcom? Yes. Well, yeah. he had one. He had a sitcom pilot he made that came out of the, somebody... Because this happens in L.A., they just saw that he had a successful movie because it plays at the Sunset LeMay Theater 
like every Saturday night. Yeah, makes yep. a grip. Of, the man has made a grip of money. Yeah. I mean, like he's doing okay. I don't yeah. don't feel bad for Tommy no. Wiseau at all. Um, and he made a sitcom pilot. I don't know if it was fully on spec, but he got money to make the, oh, the okay. sitcom pilot. And like this is legendary in Hollywood. This tape <laughs> circulated everywhere, and I've seen clips from it, and it's amazing. <laughs> But he may actually be getting the money to make it because I think Adult Swim and stuff has been trying to get him to like oh, make man. it. But like, of course, they want him to make it. The problem is he has to make it thinking he's making a great work of yes. art, or it's not going to work. Right, totally. And so they're. I think they've been trying to figure that out for a really long time, and I don't know. That well, they because ever he, will. I understand he tries to spin it these days when he as attends, a dark comedy as it, something he did on purpose. Well, if you watch the trailer. To the room, which I highly recommend, as I look right in the microphone to you, the listener, and say, "Go watch the trailer. Stop right now. Go watch the trailer for the room and come back. We'll wait." Okay, so the trailer is this very serious, ominous thing where, like, all oh, the searing drama, blah, blah, and then at the end, it's like it's a dark comedy you'll all love, like the New York, the blah. It's a big spinny thing. Like they clearly just tacked on, right? Later, because they decided when it became successful to call it a dark comedy. Mm, okay. and it doesn't matter. The right. movie's so, <laughs> so you yeah. couldn't make a movie that bad if you tried. Yeah, that's what's so amazing about it. And it's a, we watched it over the summer in my directing for camera class that I teach at American University, the uh, Discover the World Communication Program for high school students. We watched the scenes with the mother, the cancer scene <laughs> specifically, and uh, you should probably stop at this point. And just go get the movie and buy it. Don't care. It's yeah, worth the it's, money. Yeah. Um, He's never going to make another movie again, so please buy the movie. Uh, <laughs> and we watched it, and I said to everybody in the class, what was the worst part? It's all bad. Oof, was man. the directing, writing, or the acting? Which was the worst part? And they all said acting, like universally. I said, all right, I want you to watch it again, and I want you to really pay attention to the lines, what they're saying. And they watched it, and they went, oh, they're terrible lines. Like, they have yeah. nothing to hang on to. And I use it as an example of, like, actors are out on the front lines getting all of the credit a lot of the time, but they're also getting all the blame that's mm-hmm. not necessarily theirs. Mm-hmm. And so you should, when you watch a performance, know that. Like, that's the vulnerability of an actor. So when you're directing an actor, if they're getting kind of touchy, maybe it's because your material isn't that great. Right. And they know that, but they need the money. You know what I mean? Like, it's this <laughs> terrible thing of, like, they're really putting a lot on the line here. So know that. Yeah. And so we use it for that. So I'm showing it to my Vizlet students, and we're going to take it up a notch. And then this summer, I am teaching the course at Discover the World of Communication on bad movies, where we're going to watch. It's a two-week course every day, and we're going to watch. I haven't picked all the movies yet, and we can't, unfortunately, watch The Room, I don't think, because they're all high school students. Oh, It's an R-rated movie. It is an R-rated movie. So I'm going to have to take a poll at the beginning. If they're all 17 or older, I'll show it. Mm, But I'm not going to screw with with that. Oh, yeah, you don't want to. keep it under R if if everybody's not. So I have a... I have a huge collection of bad movies. I have a lot to draw from. Oh, sweet. And bad movies that not a lot of people have seen, um, like Stanley Kubrick's first movie, Fear and Desire. Oh, I have Which not. is available on YouTube in <gasps> HD and is gorgeous. It's a horrifyingly bad movie. <laughs> 60 minutes, too. Not very long. Okay, well, that's... Good, good, uh, good use. Easy to get into. It's awful. It's so pretentious. It's so oh, yeah. terrible. He tried to have all the prints of it destroyed. I'm really glad he didn't because it's important for me to watch a movie that Stanley Kubrick made that sucks. Yeah. Because he made nine other movies that are utter masterpieces. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so it's just like, I can't, I can't do that. I can't make The Shining. I can't. But I could make a better movie than Fear and Desire. Yes, yes. With my eyes closed. I think <laughs> I could do that. It would have a story and like a, it's a terrible, oh, it's a mm. terrible movie. Paul Mazursky's in it too. He's in the really? cast. I know he's just in it, just randomly. That's so funny. Shot and directed, and I think written by Stanley Kubrick. It's terrible. Oh, it's so bad. But we do that and um, other movies like Give My Regards to Broad Street, which is Paul McCartney's movie that oh, he wrote. Oh wow. Uh huh. Um, 
that's a good movie to watch if you ha- always find yourself being like, why can't my characters just get along all the time and like not have there be conflicts and stakes? Yeah. Try yeah. to stay awake. Watch, <laughs> watch Give My Regards to Broad Street in the dark. Like, turn all the lights off and be fair. Do it at like 8 o'clock at night. And if you can stay awake through the whole thing, honestly, I will give you $10. <laughs> it's the most boring movie ever made. And a real movie. That's the thing. Is like nowadays it would just be marketed as like a long form music video and nobody right. would care. Right. But like it was released in the 80s with the accompanying album. It was as a real movie. It's supposed to be an actual mm. feature film. And Paul is also the worst actor in the Beatles. So that didn't help. But <laughs> I mean the music's great. The music's always going to be great with, with Paul McCartney. But oh God, it's terrible. And um, like Howard the Duck, we're gonna. Oh watch. yes, yeah, Howard the Duck, absolutely. Not Showgirls, which I watched for the first oh, time. Oh no, last night. I've heard so many. I have not have seen, seen Showgirls. Girls? I'm oh. a big fan of Paul Verhoeven's work. It does and not disappoint. Oh man, yeah, it's a train wreck. It's such a damn train wreck. And from the jump, it's a train wreck. Oh wow, like the first two minutes of the movie make no sense. That's at so all. great. He always rides that line of being like. Yeah, he fell completely ridiculous because the acting's so terrible. That's mm. what really at the mm-hmm. end of the day. It's a gorgeous movie. I mean, design-wise, mm-hmm. this and the script is is bad from a character standpoint, and the story structure is way off. But the thing that really sinks that movie is the acting. Mm-hmm. If there were better acting, it wouldn't be quite as hated mm-hmm. as it is. It mm-hmm. wouldn't be loved. I mean, there's nothing. No, it's not yeah. a well-written movie, but people wouldn't despise it so much <laughs> if it wasn't Elizabeth Berkley out there. Oh, Just man. like. And it's so gratuitous. And the women, all oh, I yeah. tweeted this last night. It's it's like it's a story about skeezy men taking advantage of women with below average IQs. That's the way it's written, mm. and it's disgusting <laughs> that, <laughs> on a very basic level. It's disgusting. Sure. And yeah. coming off of Saved by the Bell, the, little the tricky parallels are Berkeley. very interesting there too about skeezy men taking advantage. It of is that's true. People with below right. IQs. Fun fact. Oh my god. So I have to take that shot because I took a screenwriting class from Carl Kurlander, who was the head writer or co-head writer of, oh, of Save by, by the Bell. Oh my god! He would regularly bring uh, Mr. Belding around. Dennis Haskins. Yes. yes. I, Don't call him Mr. Belding in public if you're. Yeah, I'm just, I I didn't Just go and we. Fair. He fun. is. Oh, that's good to know. I mean, the, those little details make your mm-hmm. interactions with people like that, mm-hmm. which can absolutely matter mm-hmm. in the future in ways that you it cannot predict. Though. Don't worry about <laughs> it. <laughs> like, I'm going to hate on Carl Kurlander here because I don't. He's a terrible Ooh. screenwriting teacher. Okay. That's a valid... Yes, you can criticize him for that. You because he wants you to watch good movies and learn how to write them from there. He's constantly showing you Casablanca. It's like, okay, what can this teach you about writing? It's like, well, not a hell of a lot. Because of, there's obviously some, I mean, it's not yeah. invalid, but I need to know, can you just give me the script? Can I see what was on well, the page? Well, you also need to, that's an interesting question with screenwriting. I get into that discussion a lot mm. with professional screenwriters who like object to films that have won the, the Oscar. Oh, okay. like, I read that screenplay, it's terrible. And they, it's all in the editing. It's all in the <laughs> like, That's what happened. And I think, okay, but again, we get back to awards, like, you don't. You're not going to have everybody at the academy read every screenplay. Right. Oh, no, the yeah. screenplay award is really a story award. It's yes, like, what absolutely. Story do I think was most well told? But it's like the fact I don't think that the best picture Oscar should go. I don't think there should be a best director Oscar. I think the director mm, should win yeah. best picture. I think that's right. that's the way that life should. Oh be. yeah. It yeah. won't ever happen no. that way. Um, I also think the producer should get the statue. Like I don't absolutely think, yeah, everybody like those people, but. You know, it's all awards for basically the same thing. Yeah. And the only film to win Best Picture without being nominated for Best Screenplay, the last one too, anyway, was 1997's Titanic. And I think that says all we need to know uh, about that. Yeah. Um, 
because usually the film that wins wins Best Picture also wins Best Screen uh, one of the two screenplay awards, mm-hmm. and that's not a coincidence. Like you can't no, yeah. really have one without the other. So right. you know, in terms of teaching Casablanca, I'm I'm cool with that as long as you're actually teaching it. Well, as yeah. long as you're actually taking it apart and saying. And you have to, do, you can't just go see. That's the real problem. You have to be yes. like, notice how this plays off with this. Notice how this character feeds into this and we didn't think it was. And what do all the cast members at the bar tell us about Rick? And what do they tell us about Ilsa? And what do they tell us about everything else that's happening? That's important. Yeah. And it's trickier yes. than, first of all, just saying see. Or I can show you the, the a movie that, I'm going to say The Room again, but whatever, a terrible, Plan 9 from Outer Space. Yeah. yeah. And be like, why is this... Why doesn't Manos work as a movie? Mm-hmm. It's terrible, fine, but why doesn't it work? What rules are he break? Is he breaking? Right. And we can really, really peel the onion on these movies because, like yeah. I said, you know inherently what's a good story. It's been told stories enough to know like this is a yeah, well-told story. Absolutely. It's not. And when people say I hate, the biggest film objection I hate or play object, whatever people write, is like, oh, it had no plot. It's not true. Yeah. <laughs> Because there are some fantastic movies that have no plot, like yeah. MASH and Dazed and Confused and mm-hmm. Clerks have no plot whatsoever. That's not the point. What you're actually saying is, I didn't like the plot, or the conflict right. wasn't intriguing, or one of those things. You're commenting on how the plot wasn't good, and or how the story wasn't good, yeah. or how the film wasn't compelling, maybe is really what you're saying. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. So that's, and that's, that's a, a simple way of also being like, and this film is great. You know, here's Casablanca, and it's great. End of class. You know, right? Which is See? kind of what happened. Yeah. Well, and also, I have the problem now where I do an exercise with my film students where they, or with the Vizlet students, where they, I give them the story outline from Save the Cat, that great screenwriting book. And, yeah. uh, which is, you know, say what you will about Save the Cat. Fundamentally, you can't argue with, like, the guy knows his fundamentals. Yeah. He never really wrote a good movie while he was alive, but he knows the fundamentals of screenwriting. Yeah. And that's what he's trying to teach yeah. you. And he has an outline that you have to follow. Like where the beats should come in every screenplay. Yeah, yeah. And I give that to my students uh, and I say, go find a movie you really like and fill out the sheet. Find the beats. And I always give them an example. And I used to give them Witness because Witness oh. is like the quintessentially well-written movie, structurally speaking. Mm-hmm. But I don't do Witness anymore because nobody's seen Witness. Right. It's, yeah. it's a bad example. So every year I try to find a, a recent movie and I've been stuck on Silver movie. Linings Playbook for a little while. Interesting. Because... Movies more and more screw with structure. Good movies. Oh, yeah. Screw with structure. And one of my students was like, I'm going to do Psycho. I was like, you can't. Mm. It doesn't follow the rules. Like, it doesn't... It, it does follow the rules. But one of the things that makes it great is how it subverts the rules. Mm-hmm. You know, it kills the main character in the, the first middle, 30 yeah. Spoiler alert. So, <laughs> if you didn't know that. You may not have known she's the main character. Not a lot of people know that because they assume she dies early. She's not, but she is. Right, no, Until she, she dies, she's the main character of the movie. And then Norman becomes the main yeah. character of the movie. Um, but so... That usually fails. That usually, when that happens in a movie, it usually ends up being like Superman 3, mm. where like Richard Pryor is the only person in that movie for like 20 minutes. <laughs> On the, do you listen to um, How Did This Get Made, that podcast? No. One of my favorites, all about bad movies. But Jason Manzoukas posited on that podcast when they did Superman 3, it was like, he's like, do you think that on like the ninth day of shooting, they went, oh, by the way, Richard, this is a Superman movie. And he was like, I don't think so. <laughs> He clearly would have shown up by now. Like the movie's been going on for twenty, like we're forty pages in. There's been no Superman. Why? This is a Richard Pryor movie about a computer programmer, right? And that's how it feels. Usually, that's what happens right. when you do the switcheroo. But because Hitchcock's good enough, and because the screenplay is tight enough, and the acting's good, all the things come together, yeah, and it actually works. But yeah, it doesn't follow the rules. So I'm having a lot of trouble coming up with movies not only that follow the rules, but that everybody has seen. That everyone has seen. Because when I dissected, yeah. I was going to use the Lego Movie. Oh yeah, because that really follows structure very well too. Until the third act, and then the structure doubles in on itself, and 
I may just do the Lego movie and be like, I'm ignoring a whole aspect of the plot here on purpose. <laughs> it doesn't follow the rules. But right. I don't want to do that. I want to keep it. On. So I haven't seen Guardians of the Galaxy yet. I'm hoping uh, Guardians so of the good. Galaxy will follow the structure and I can use that going forward. I'm sure it does to an extent. Yeah, I mean, I, I would much. say that it. Yeah. Hero's Journey movies. Tend. Exactly. I mean, it's very Hero's Journey. But don't tell times. my students, Silver Linings Playbook doesn't really follow it either because no, yeah. it gets up to the dance competition and then it becomes Jennifer Lawrence's movie for 20 minutes. Yes. Entirely. And you're just, and I went, I was following, I remember the first time I did it and I was like, oh crap. Well, screw it. I'm too far in. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. it still works. I sent it to a friend of mine. I sent it to Eddie Quintana actually. And I said, does this make sense? And he went, yes. I was like, fine. I'm giving it to my students. It works. It's fine. Right. It's fine. <laughs> but, Touchstone, a movie of, that I always go back to, and I think enough people have seen or have heard of the franchise anyway, is is always Die Hard. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Die Such Hard a brilliantly again, they haven't balanced. seen it. That's uh, a shame. Lethal Weapon. Oh, Lethal all, Weapon is Movies so good, yeah. in the 80s yeah. followed structure yeah. really well. That's yeah. really, when you talk about screenwriting structure, that's where it was perfected, yeah. was in the movie machine of the 80s. The 70s, because the 70s was very experimental. Yes. The 80s was the machine. And the 90s, the movies came out and still followed the structure, but they that's when the indie movement came in yeah. and things really like got weird. So now we're in kind of another world where the indie movement and the film movement, the main line, have kind of put themselves together. And Quentin Tarantino's making mainstream movies. And no one ever thought that would have right. happened nope. in the early 90s. Nope. So it's... Um, it, it's really tricky to figure to find those those movies. So I I, I made the yeah. other thing is you can just go back to it. It'd be like watch Witness. It's a freaking great movie. Yeah, you shouldn't yeah. just watch Witness. Like it's an it's amazing. And Harrison Ford got nominated for an Oscar. I know Harrison Ford, <laughs> but he's really good in the movie. It's a really good movie. So you should watch Witness. Um, but you know they don't have time for that sort of thing. Well, it's yeah. an overview class. I don't want to be too unfair. Right. With them, yeah. or I can tell them screw it. I'm the teacher. And you have to do exactly what I say. <laughs> I could go either way. But I'm only an adjunct, so I don't. I want to keep my uh, job. There, I need the I reviews. Was, I, I need the reviews. The extremely reviews interested well. in that in your status with the university as. Um, yeah, I'm an adjunct professor at the School of Communication currently, which means I can teach three classes a year. Mm-hmm. And I assume there's a there's a limit to the level that you can. No, teach. there's oh, not. Really? I've taught grad classes. Uh, oh. I taught a producing uh, web series class on the grad level. Oh, awesome. Oh yeah, I've taught all over the place because I have the master's degree. I mean, I'm qualified. Oh, that's interesting because yeah. my sister, well, in the language arts, um, not having the PhD means the master's is not sufficient for you to teach culture classes. Oh, okay. Well, that's, I mean, that's, and that's the way they, yeah, yeah. Is that here? That's at Stevenson University. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I mean, the, every every school is different. Every yeah, university yeah. is different. Every school handles their adjuncts differently and has different policies. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, we're in the swirl of that culturally, which is why I wanted to bring that up. Yeah, like, yeah, we are. We're sitting here, beautiful room 305 in the McKinley building. A swirl's good because it's, it's also circle. circle. It's a yeah, circular room, yeah. very comfortable chairs. So we're both yeah. leaning forward, so we're not <laughs> as comfortable as we could be in these chairs. Um, but yeah, so I'm an adjunct, and I teach over the summer for the Discover the World, which is mm-hmm. not... I'm paid by the university, but it's not direct. It is directly affiliated with you. It's just a different thing. Okay. It doesn't yeah. count against my adjunct. Uh, that's what go. I'm trying okay. to say. Um, so yeah, in every calendar year from fall to summer, I can teach three classes. Okay. And I can teach them all in one semester, or I can teach them over mm, three okay. semesters, yeah. or you know, two and one, however they want to break it down. Okay. But really the thing is that you're the lowest in terms of once the classes are doled out. Oh, yeah. Okay. So... To put your class, like I have specialty classes, like my bad movies class that I want to teach, and I have uh, my web series classes I want to teach, and things like that. But all the full time faculty's classes have to get filled first, and they have to oh, teach yeah. three a semester. Right. Okay. So they have to get all their fulfillment done 
and then whatever's left over is for us. And that's the way it should be. I mean, that's that's how the, the mm-hmm. pay scale works. Yeah. And so that's why I've lately been teaching VizLit, which is a requirement, and there's like eight sections of it. So they oh, need okay. a lot gotcha. of people teaching yeah. it. And I love teaching it. Yeah. I absolutely do. It's a very interesting course. I mean, I it wish is. I had it's a really something interesting course. offered and like that. Sarah Menke-Fish, the professor who designed it, it was very intelligent. She sort of started the ball rolling and then kind of passed it off to various people. Mm. Um, it used to be taught by three professors. The three, Each section was taught by some oh, people's okay. specialty. And then... Kylos Brannon, who's a professor here, kind of helped Sarah. They they melded it into a course that could be taught by one person. And now uh, they just hired a full-time, dedicated, full-time Vizlet professor, uh, Kim, mm. Kim Yerna. I hope I'm pronouncing her last name right. I'm probably not. But she's great. And she has been working a lot with us, other because there's six of us, I think, teaching it, um, to try to make it kind of a universal course and sarah i know oh, okay. wants it to be a university-wide requirement she thinks everybody should take it and oh, i wholeheartedly yeah agree. i totally agree it's a very very crucial class just to exist in the world and i mean I've, i have kids from the school of international service and the Co-Bank oh yeah school of business all over the place taking this class and all getting something different out of it absolutely um because to be able to absorb media is crucial to be able to dissect the way that you absorb it yeah and and to know what it's doing to you and to know why it's very very important and that's why i start with advertising the first thing oh yeah is advertising and i have them go find ads they like and we talk about them and then i show them other ads like the history of advertising Mm -hmm. and do they have to read a paper i wrote in grad school yes they do (laughs) but uh you know i wrote it so they have good for something ivory soap it is it sits there on blackboard and gets downloaded at the beginning of every semester read by at least 20 people um Citation. It was a very long paper. Uh, but, um, yeah, so it, it's a crucial, crucial class, and I love teaching it. But yeah. that, that's what being an adjunct basically means. Mm-hmm. So my courses that are more specialty get offered a lot over the summer, both in the gotcha. Discover the World, and then I've taught my web series class uh, over the summer mm-hmm. as well for grad students. And that's just, that's a smaller pool you're drawing from, obviously. Yeah, but right. there are people taking those classes, so... It's an important representation. I would love a full-time job in America. <laughs> I would. I love. I love working here. And I will just. Yeah. I mean, I'm luck. I'm in a very lucky position where my, my wife is as a full-time job. She's a civil engineer. She has oh, a, she has a real job. Mm, yeah. And uh, she's really, really uh, smarter than me and uh, dedicated person. And so she has the. She's being the primary breadwinner yeah. has allowed me to be a playwright and also be a stay-at-home dad which i which i am oh, yeah, that's great. um but my son's in school now so i can go off and do things and teach you know once a week and and it's not a burden on us at all and i'm very very fortunate in that regard it's not a burden financially time mm, right it's right a huge burden Obviously, but it's not yeah. financially a burden right yeah that that was never part of the discussion so that's that's very that's great yeah mm-hmm. absolutely yeah that practical things like that i mean fa- fascinate me because just like the elements of production careers and choices like that are so much out of our own control often oh yeah being able to live and do what i do and start this business and start this podcast is only possible because i don't have to pay rent because i live with my family Mm -hmm. and um and that's it that's the thing yeah there's no shame in that at all no no that's that's the but that's the thing is people do tend to feel shame about that stuff and it's like you're i know how many actors do you know in this town who have no other job uh very few i know two who have who only act and they also teach on the side so mm. you could call that like you can count that as technically they don't have another job it's certainly not a full-time teaching but right. they teach at, at camps and mm-hmm. things so yeah, nobody's here just no, doing yeah. it that's not what this city is about and that's one of the reasons i think the art is so vibrant because people really have to dedicate their free time to it so yes. we're passionate as hell Absolutely. about it but then also one of the things i like about teaching and even if i was making movies on my own and all that i would continue to teach and i really mean mm. that 
for two reasons. One, it keeps me connected to the youth, which is very important to know what the hell they're talking yeah, about. Yeah, absolutely. And what apps they're actually using as yeah. opposed to the ones that people say they're using. Right. Um, I live with teenagers for that. One. See, there you go. <laughs> See? Um, but also being in the real world is important. Mm. The, how many filmmakers and playwrights have we watched their art as they get older deteriorate into this fantasy land of mm. like rich white people and that's it. Speaking of David Mamet. Speaking of David Mamet. Also, Woody Allen is a mm. great example of that, though he kind of started there. But it was always <laughs> about, like, the, they get so into their head yeah. because they don't have any, because they never, people like that, I, I feel like, don't like the real world. And I totally dig that. I don't like being out in the world and, and shucking for a living. I don't think anybody does. Yeah. But that's where the material comes from. Mm-hmm. That's where the conflicts come from. That's where you you can't just write in a bubble. You have to go out and live your life and meet people who inspire other ideas. And I'm not saying it's a one-to-one, but yeah. it's, this is where we draw from. This is And so keeping yourself in the real world and being grounded and, and yeah. all that is very, very important to keeping your art relevant and vibrant to the community. Yeah. And it's that really set. I mean, you know, it happens in music too, where, you know, you have somebody like Bruce Springsteen who writes a lot about working class people and then he gets wealthy. And he, and it's not his fault. Like that's no, the thing. Yeah, he gets and that's wealthy. what's so interesting And that's why that they tension, always end yeah. up writing about God because that's the only thing they have to worry about anymore. They have all the money and they have all the stuff and now they're just worried about what happens when they die. Yeah. And that's fine, like that's, but that's they're not, you know, quote unquote, as relevant anymore. It's only truly sad when like the people are one hit wonders and then come oh, back and yeah. they have they have no money left right. over. That makes me sad. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of which, uh, uh, in terms of the co- permeating the culture right now, and t- since you touched on music and musicians who may or may not have anything to say, you mm-hmm. uh, too. <laughs> yeah, that was weird. It's still I was, weird. I was unprepared for that. I and I feel well. You I, like the album. Right? I feel out of step because I actually do like you the do. album. And I haven't listened to it. I will be honest at this point. I should have for today. And now it occurs to me because you like the album. <laughs> but I don't like you too. No, that's and that's so. This is where a lot of anger is coming from, though, because it turns out you know, statistically speaking, most people don't like you too. <laughs> Certainly, if you're going with five hundred million. <laughs> there was somebody put a funny tweet out the other day that was like. I want free music. I want free music. Here's free music. You're a monster. <laughs> Which isn't quite right, but it's really funny. It's um, pretty close. Because it's pretty close. Yeah. Uh, the thing I think that, well, going back to what we were talking about before we started recording the first episode, um, a friend of mine once, my friend J.R. King once said that like apples and PCs are like Catholicism and Protestantism. Oh, interesting. Where like the Mac is Catholicism. It tells you exactly what to do and you have to do it their way and you can like do a little bit in the, but it's really just their way or the highway. And the PC is like Protestantism, which is like, whatever. If it fits, <laughs> if it fits within the basic tenets right. of what we're talking about, exactly. just you be you. And the Protestantism breaks all the time, but the Catholicism holds strong because it's rigid and people are unhappy and in can, it, obviously with the Mac, because right. you've never met a... Occasionally like, commits atrocities. Exactly. <laughs> can, yes, yes. Well, you know, Mac, terrible people, all those bombings. Anyway, the... Uh, um, but that's what it, like iTunes is such a rigid platform mm. and I live on iTunes because we have a we, we're, we're cord cutters in my house not for any political reason but because it's too expensive we don't oh, have cable yeah. we just I, have the internet yeah. and to make that a viable option for us because we had a nice TV we bought a Mac Mini mm-hmm. as like an upfront cost and an antenna and run the antenna into the oh, Mac gotcha. Mini yeah. and run everything through Hulu into the TV so we have a Mac plug yeah. in the TV and then I just dumped all my media onto this like 3 terabyte external hard drive like all of our music and stuff so everything lives on that mm-hmm. Mac and it's great because anywhere in the house we can plug into the shared files and play any of our music on any of our computers and that's all great but the way iTunes kind of mandates your organizational skills oh, rubs man. me wrong. And yeah. I've gone through and reorganized all my files. And, like, I live with that Oh, we, we both – I was born in 1980 as well. So oh, okay. So we went through my first collection. Would you have Winamp? Yes. And I had to curate See, each started, file specifically. I started with Freeamp. 
Oh yeah, which was okay. like iTunes. And then I got off it because every time you moved a file, you had to relink it. So right. then I went to Winamp, which mm-hmm. all of us had. And then Winamp sucks so badly. What happened? You just sort of live in playlists, and but the playlists don't update easily, and you no, have all yeah. these files, and yeah. So then you just end up dragging stuff in, kind of one, and then you just have your play. But back then we only had like a hundred MP3s. Like how many yeah, did you no, have? Not that many. Well, so I, you you were in college for Napster then. Oh yes. So you were in college in the golden age of internet downloading. Oh which yes. Is, I try to explain to students, and they have no idea what I'm talking about. Oh, it was the wild west. Oh, it was my gosh. amazing. There was all this music that I didn't pay for, and it was morally ambiguous. But what was so funny, as I tell people, is that I had an apartment of five people my senior year, and each of us had our own moral ethic. Interesting. How much music we would download because we all knew it was illegal. Mm-hmm. All of us in the room were smart enough to know like, yeah. this is not okay. Right. <laughs> and stop pretending it is. You know what I mean? Like yes. that was the thing. Really, like, shut up. I wrote my junior thesis on Napster's use of the Sony defense and their lawsuits. So, oh. I mean, I'm a big media nerd from way back. But um, so I would download anything I wanted. That was my thing. But mm-hmm. I wouldn't burn complete albums to CD. That was my. Oh, okay. If I wanted the album, I would go pay for it. Absolutely. I would download it. But then if I really liked it, I would go pay for it. If I didn't like it, I would delete it. That was my other thing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a hoarder. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I had a, and then I had uh, a friend, JR, as I mentioned before, he was one of my roommates. He wouldn't download complete albums. He would mm-hmm. download up to like three or four songs. And if he liked all four songs, he would go buy the CD. Right. That was his line. Mm-hmm. And then we had another roommate who would do whatever he wanted. He would download everything and down, burn things and didn't care and didn't know what we were all so fussing about. Because <laughs> he, I think, took the approach of like, this isn't going to last. So oh, I'm yeah. going to get while the getting's good. <laughs> and, you know, we all had these different lines. And this moral, so we created this kind of like moral society in our apartment and we had various levels of like what we thought was okay and what we thought wasn't okay in terms of what's stealing. Like where, yeah. what is actually <laughs> Where's that stealing? Line? Yeah. And for me, it was burning full albums. That's stealing. sure. Yeah. I now have a bootleg of that album basically mm-hmm. in my yeah. hand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it's just, a, <laughs> but that's funny that you were there for the oh like yeah glory days. I was what, so Case Western Reserve University is a research one university. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's. Division three in almost every other respect, but there's a lot of money at it. NASA has a huge research. See a good internet connection. Oh my gosh, well, we had at, fiber to the backbone. We were at when I was at Catholic U. It was the first. Pardon me one second. It was the first um, uh, campus uh, that had uh, internet in every room oh, in DC. It was the first okay. campus in DC to have internet in every single room, and so um, when. We, we, I mean, we all had T1 connections in the room. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we had tremendous internet oh, yeah. availability. I mean, it was absolutely yep. remarkable. Which is why that part of my experience makes it so weird to me with you, too, because back in the day, all of it was already just automatically available. Yeah. And not necessarily on your device. You two, they just flipped the switch. And that's the same thing as an FTP server that I go to, somebody uploads this album, it is now available to me and I can choose to get it or not. Right. Now, does it show up in your iTunes on your computer? I have or actually... do I have my settings... Because my, my settings hide music that's in the cloud that I have, like, deleted. Then it won't show up. Okay. Yeah. But it would if I turn that setting Yes. Because it shows up on my phone. That, that's exactly the experience that I had. Because I had noticed that it yeah, was exactly. in my thing. And then there was all this kerfuffle. And then I was like, oh, maybe I just didn't quite do that right. And then I went to my phone. And I was like, oh, there it is. Yeah. Like, oh, all right. Like, I, I didn't, yeah, I had the same, I, I don't really care. I would rather you didn't. I mean. But I don't care because I can hide it. Yeah. Like, it's not actually, you didn't download it onto me. You didn't physically take up space on my computer. Right, exactly. It's a funny thing to say. Like, the, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Oh, you didn't, like, you didn't force the bandwidth down my throat. Like, whatever you right, want to say. Right, right. You didn't, I, you I, didn't, I didn't a incur a cost as a result of a choice that you made. And also, there's no other way to do it. Yeah. Like you could make it free on iTunes in the store. 
and then the fans will download it. Or maybe if you put it on the front page, a few more people would right. download it. But then they actually have to download it. Yeah. So I see both sides. I think they're all dumb. I think everybody's playing. I think I think U2 was dumb for doing it. I think that what U2 should have done is release the album for free, but only on iTunes. They should have oh, sold that's it everywhere much more else interesting. Yeah. and been like, but it's free on iTunes. So if you want to get it, yeah. get it on iTunes. Yeah. And it's free. And that would have, because like when, was it Coldplay who did, or Radiohead? Who released a free Radiohead. album? Radiohead did the Pay free what album. You Pay what you want. want. Yeah. Right, and that got a lot of publicity. And that was an experiment for them. They didn't do it again. Right. Um, but the price of their next album was based on the information that they got from the Pay What You Want. Right. Which was the whole point. Experimentation, yeah. Experimentation seeing what gets could data be. points. Don't make, don't, which, bring it back around to theater. It's like, yeah. please experiment with your business models. <laughs> yes, you do have to pay something. Yes. Yes, yes, do experiment with it's your business okay models. It's okay to take risks. You need to pay if you learn from I it. I argue with those people because you need to pay because the audience needs Absolutely. to have some skin in the game and totally. the act, the, the, there needs to be something at stake. Yes. There needs to be somebody to be like, I, I, you have to bet on this show yes. one way or the other. And you have to be able to put money into the show. So that helps too. But yeah, <laughs> I was just, I mean, because I went to see Sunday at Signature and it's a brilliant production. Don't get me wrong. But it was a hundred bucks a ticket. That's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. And that's a lot of money for anybody. I don't care yeah. who you are. Yeah, exactly. And it was worth it. As it turned out, but I didn't know that going in. Yeah, it's hard to I'm bet on hundred bucks. You know, my friend Evan Casey's in it, and, and Aaron Driscoll's in it, and like these people I know from Signature, and and they're great, but like that's a lot of money, <laughs> and I'm just like, you know. But we went, and it was great. I mean, mm. as it turned out, I cried like a baby. I'm not proud to. I'm not. Ashamed, <laughs> I should say I'm not ashamed to say, cried like a baby at the end of Act One. Um, <laughs> well, but uh, yeah, I know. Uh, it's a remarkable production. It's great. But, I mean, that's yeah. a lot of money. It is. And that keeps a certain person out of the theater. Yes, it does. Yeah. Now, it's got Broadway talent. They cost money. It's got a great... And they spend it. You saw it in front of you. You saw the money on the stage. I will say that for them. And they have that great facility. And it's the 25th anniversary season. You want to raise a little money. Blah, blah, yeah. blah. I understand all that stuff. That's a lot of money. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Yeah. And I, I wanted to tell my students to go see it. I did. I was like, if you've got the time and a car and a spare hundred dollars, <laughs> it's worth a shot. Of course, now it's sold out. So I guess yeah. I don't know which of us is, you know, they sold out. Well, that's a, you know, when you it know. works really well, you can sell out something in the Park with George. But I don't know that you're ever going to sell out Wallenstein either. Uh, no, but that's why we have subscribers. Right. Which I, David Mamet's also against, if you've read theater. Uh, He's yeah. very against it. And that's a harder one for me to fight against. I'm yeah. like, I get it. Yeah. But I get, like, you're right. You're more right. Subscribers aren't... It, it, you need a regular business model to run a theater. You need a regular yes. cash flow. And I get that. Which is, yeah, what it's which about. Is, yeah. Which is what it's about. And I totally get that. At the same time... And it also gives you the freedom to do things like weird well, things. Well, yeah, absolutely. Things, yeah. Like things you don't, you know. But not as weird as you'd think yeah. because you can't drive the subscribers away. Right. So there's ha there's an understanding about what those subscribers expect that right. you have to Which deal I'm with. okay with. Like the other thing is like I, I, I don't have any illusions about okay. what we do. <laughs> we are entertainers. That is our primary function. I, I, I hate to quote Aaron Sorkin because I think he's kind of a pompous jerk. I hate jerk. him. But he said, one of his characters said, I said that the purpose of an art, like, like that an artist's job is to capture your, uh, hold your attention for as long as we've asked for it. Mm. And I think that's kind that's of true. It's a good boiling down of an assessment. That's my job. I've written a play. It's 80 minutes long. It is my job to hold your attention for those 80 minutes. If it's shorter, if it's longer, whatever. It's my job to entertain you first. Mm -hmm. And then if we get to something deeper and meaningful and truthful, awesome. But first and foremost, I have to entertain you yeah. for that length of time. And so I don't have a problem with the fact that like a theater company 
has to do Neil Simon. Oh, no, yeah. For the 900th time. time. Because people like it. Yeah, it's a, absolutely. And they're good shows. They're not bad shows. He won a Pulitzer, too. I mean, these yeah. people can write. That's why they were famous in the first place. Now, I've seen it 100 times. I don't need to see it again. But I'm an above-average yeah, viewer. I'm not the target audience for that show. That's my parents. Mm-hmm. They want to go see Neil Simon. Mm-hmm. But if it's the Neil Simon that gets them to subscribe and see the new play by me, right. I'm fine with that. Now, there's a balance that has to be struck. Absolutely. And that's the fight that we will have. And the, I don't think there's a solution to that. I don't the, either, the, yeah. The fight is the solution. Oh, yeah, you agree. We will yeah. constantly be struggling. Successful theaters will constantly say they don't have enough money. And successful playwrights will constantly say they're not being paid enough. And unsuccessful playwrights will constantly, or should say people like me, will constantly be saying there are not enough avenues for me to be produced. Yeah. We will all always feel that way. Because there's more of us coming every single damn day. Yeah. And it's just... It's important to remember what what we're all here to do, why we're all here to do it, and also not to give in to the fear that we all kind of like. Because I've said to a hundred people, you know, students of mine always come up to me late in the semester. They should come earlier, but they always come late, and they're just like, oh, "So I'm graduating. Mm. What what do I do?" Mm-hmm. And I say, "What do you want to do?" And they tell me, and I'm, I'm in the school of communication, so they're all like, "I want to make movies." I was like, "Then you move to LA." Yep. And they say, "When?" And I say, "May." And they kind of get this look on their face. Yep. And I'm like, you, you just, you have to. Just do the damn thing, as I say to students over and over again. And if yep. you see me out in public and I say that to somebody, that's what I mean. Because mm. we've had that conversation. And you'll see me on campus sometimes being like, do the damn, like yelling at a crowd. <laughs> because it's true. Just Absolutely. do it. Absolutely. Just do the thing you want to do. If you want to be a director, move to New York. What? Just do it. And, and then if, you have, if it doesn't work, you back it off. But if it does work... Amazing. Yeah. And also have a realistic expectation of what that's going to be. Like, as I also Absolutely. say to my students, you're 22 years old, move to LA, but don't expect anyone to give a shit about what, anything you're doing until you're 30. Yeah. So you have eight years to do anything you want to do. Take the classes, meet the guy, make the short film that nobody wants to see, try to stay out of porno. And just, <laughs> you know, but work your way yeah. to the top because education in this country is kind of like, I say, is like a slingshot where like you starting in like junior high school, they keep pulling you back and talking about the importance of the future and the importance of applications. And then at graduation, they let you go and you expect yourself to go catapulting across into the stars and actually happens is you fall straight to the ground because as an eighth grader, you become a freshman and you're the lowest of the totem pole and you climb your way up to senior year yep. and then you start over again and you're a freshman and you climb your way up to senior year and then when you graduate from college, you are now a life freshman. Yeah. And it's not a four-year program. Nope. It's a 40 to 60-year program and you are at the bottom and you just have to start doing the damn thing you want to do. And the problem is we get to these positions and we get comfortable and we get yeah, like... Yeah, absolutely. And then we get stuck and that's totally valid because I think a lot of our decisions are based on the fear of failure or the fear of going hungry or the yes. fear of very valid fears. Rational entirely, yeah. Absolutely. But we can't... You can't live that way. Yeah, that's... You can't create art that way. We're crazy. That's the whole point. I'm a crazy, crazy person. Yes. I am. I'm insane. My wife tells me every day. <laughs> and she's not wrong. But if I wasn't crazy, I wouldn't do this. You know, I would never have thought to myself, you know, it'd be great if there was a story about people who found a giant box of pornography. Nobody else in my family ever had that thought. Nobody I know has had that thought. That was my thought. I'm out of my damn mind. (laughs) But hopefully you came and you saw and you were entertained. And I'll go do something else crazy. And hopefully you'll like that, too. I feel like we have to stop now because I've reached the apex of my frustration. I mean, that was (laughs) eloquent and epic and... 
I don't know that we can go anywhere else after that. <laughs> I feel like we should all sing, Do You Hear the People Say <laughs> Oh, my God. I don't know where uh, that came from. That was great. That was great. fantastic. And it was recorded, thank God. Yes, multi- on, in multiple venues. Multiple yes. devices. It's I've, been almost two hours, Yes, right? okay, I feel yeah. like we should shut this the rest down. of yeah. your life is getting to... It is. My phone rang only once, though. Uh, so that would... I have to call my wife, but my son is sick and oh, she's okay. at home with him. So, well, yeah, that seems more important <laughs> at this point. Thank you so much for spending <laughs> so much you of your time with me. This was great. Yeah, I loved it. This was wonderful. So now I'm I mean, too far away from Mike. You have to promise me something. <laughs> okay. Another thing. Since I'm on before the show has come out, and I didn't know what the show was, yes. and I agreed to be on it, you have to promise me that if you have a live show, I have to be one of the guests on the live show. Oh my gosh, that is done. The only, okay, good. I've done. got you on recording saying that. Yes, this is good. I feel good about this, Aaron. This is going to be a thing. This is going to be the episode everybody talks about. And they're like, did you hear Patrick's episode? Because that was pretty fucking great. Because, you know, you know, that was really great. That's a great show. They whisper when they talk about you. That's how good you are. They're just like, Aaron, teach me so 